Guess where we are today? The book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 20. So this is why this is such a big deal. We are really, I don't even remember when we started this, but we've been traveling verse by verse through the book of Acts. As we have gone through Acts, um, it's just been on my heart to, to pause in certain areas and press into, like when we were studying Peter's life uh, through Acts chapter 8, before we ended the narrative of Peter and Acts, we went and read Peter's letters just to really press into his mind and his personality as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. As we've traveled with Paul through the book of Acts, We've paused in each one of the communities. So as he found himself in Corinth for the first time, we paused our study in Acts and went and studied First and Second Corinthians together just to really get an understanding of how this community and its nuances is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's actually a year ago this Sunday, it was the last time that we were in the book of Acts because Paul is in Ephesus here in Acts chapter 19 and 20. And Ephesus has a tremendous amount of information regarding it as, as a hub, as, as a hub of the church ultimately uh, for the gospel there in Asia Minor. So we went and studied Ephesians uh, because the Apostle John was that what became his home. We studied 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We also studied the book of Revelation because that is addressed to churches in this area. And then that also led us to Colossians, which is another church in this area, and then Philemon last week. So now we're coming back to Acts, and I'm not going to do a long-winded introduction of of the narrative up until this point. We just want to get an idea of where Paul is here in Ephesus. So in Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes to Ephesus, this is a community that he plants in for a couple of years. So just so you sit in your life and what's, what's transpired in the last two years of your life in church relationships. This is a lot of time as he is actively teaching in a school. It's our understanding he's, he's there teaching every single day. He's investing not only in the Ephesian church and that community. We're told in Acts chapter 19 that all of Asia heard the gospel while he was planted in this community. So as we studied Colossians, it's our understanding that Paul never went to the Colossian community. But those in that community had come to Ephesus, they had heard the gospel, they had taken the gospel back to their community, and the church has been planted there through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in that community. So now as Paul is sitting here in Ephesus, he's been there for a couple of years, and as he's been there for a couple of years, and all of Asia has heard the gospel, tension and contention started to well up because in Acts chapter 19, so many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ that it's impacting the culture in Ephesus. It's impacting the, the godless business of idolatry in Ephesus, and that raises these guys up. Chris. <laughs> Leave it to the worship guy's cell phones. Um, so many people are coming to the gospel that, it, again, it's interrupting the, the business and trade of the manufacturing of idols in this community. So there's this, there's this stirring up in the community. There's this huge uproar. But before the uproar happens, look at verse, in chapter 19, 
verse 21, it says, when these things are accomplished, so we're given the narrative of what's gone on in, in Ephesus, when these things are accomplished, Paul's purposing in the spirit when, the, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, which we're going to get into today, that he wants to go to Jerusalem and then saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So as we sit in Paul's life this morning, we're only going to cover a few chapters, or a few chapters, a few paragraphs, you're welcome. And that is going to take us through a year of Paul's life in the future. So even as we sat in, it's been a year since we've been in the book of Acts, but as you sit in the, the last year of your life, you could give a very brief outline of that year, but then at the same time, how much has really happened in the last year of your life? In relationships, in health, occupation, where you live, We've all had a lot of events that have transpired over the last year that we could write a huge narrative on. And the narrative that we're going to sit in this morning, Luke is sitting at a really high level, but we have, because of Paul's other writings, we have some information that's going to help feed into what's going on in Paul's heart and his relationship with the Lord and his relationship with the churches as we travel with him. So we, we're going to sit in a year in his life, but Paul is not just sitting in like a past year of his life. He's also making plans for the next year. We're sitting culturally. We just ended Thanksgiving. We're going to hit Christmas in a month. And then after Christmas, what do we do? Then it's New Year. What are you going to do in the New Year? It's time to take stock of what's happened over the last year. What, what was good? What was bad? What do you need to give thanks for? What are your, your plans and your goals and your strategy to achieve those plans and goals for the upcoming, upcoming year? We have those kind of ideas culturally that we all sit in. But for Paul, there's something going on in Paul's relationship with the Holy Spirit that's in him where he's saying in his mind and his heart, after I travel through Macedonia and Greece, I'm going to head to Jerusalem, and after I leave Jerusalem, I'm going to Rome. These are, this is what has been planted in his heart. The details of that, who knows? But again, this is, this is the detail of his heart. And then now as we plug back into Acts, um, we're not going to go study any other books until we finish the book of Acts, because we're really just going to follow along with Paul in these final chapters. So let's look at Acts chapter 20. We're going to read through this first paragraph. It says, After the uproar, so this uproar in Ephesus, after it had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Tro Tro Trophimus of Asia. This is the thing with names in the Bible. Just say it with authority and everybody believes that you're correct. How many of you learned Philemon versus Philemon? I said Philemon sometime this week, and somebody looks at me, and he goes, you mean Philemon? Anyways, just say it with authority, and everybody will believe you. So Tychicus, which is probably Tychicus, by the way, anyways, and Trophimus, Trophimus of Asia, 
These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So Luke is just giving us this very high-level traveling agenda. Paul's been in Ephesus for a couple of years, over two years, and now I titled this morning's sermon, On the Road Again, because now Paul's on the road again traveling. But here's the information that we can feed into this. So Paul is in Ephesus, which if you get on a map in, in modern-day Turkey, as it, as it extends out there into the Mediterranean, right in the middle is Ephesus. And as you travel north along the coast is where you hit Pergamum, and then Troas is up there at the top. So here, Troas isn't mentioned. Earlier on in, in Acts, it's in Acts chapter 16, we are told that Paul is traveling through the area of Galatia, and the Holy Spirit is hindering him, preventing him from sharing the gospel in a certain area in Turkey. And when he finds himself at Troas there on the coast, God gives him a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and preach the gospel to us. So Paul immediately sets his course towards Macedonia, which lands in Philippi. So as he's here in Troas now, as he's traveling back into Macedonia from Ephesus, Luke skips over this stop in Troas. We all, the only reason we know that he stopped in Troas is because in his second letter to Corinth, he mentions that he stopped here, and this is what's going on. When he left Corinth, and he goes back to Antioch, and now he finds himself in Ephesus, and he's there for an extended period of time, this is when the relationship with the Corinthian church starts to suffer. So at some point while Paul was in Ephesus, he writes a letter that we don't have, and he gives it to Titus and sends Titus to Corinth with that letter. And in the, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, we were told that it was, it was a harsh letter. The, the Corinthians, they began to develop issues with Paul. Just, I mean, these are all like cultural, fleshly kind of things, and Paul is correcting uh, the issues that are going on. So he sends Titus with this letter that's, that's a harsh rebuke. So Paul is sitting in this period of time that he knows he's going to travel there, and then he's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Rome. But while he's there in Ephesus with it, this in his mind, even in the midst of this uproar in Ephesus, Paul is sitting in the circumstance of relationships that are broken that he's praying for restoration, that as it takes Titus time to get to Corinth and for the Corinthian church to receive that letter and to process through it, and he's waiting for Titus to come back, he's sitting in unknown. He's sitting in the unknown in regards to this relationship. So in 2 Corinthians, we know that he makes a stop at Troas, and it's as he makes this stop, he says that God opened the door for the gospel to be shared in Troas. But even as God is opening the door for the gospel to be preached and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians that he still had this angst in his spirit because Titus hadn't come back to him yet and give him the, given him the word of how the Corinthian church responded. So he picks up from Troas and sails to Philippi. And again, in 2 Corinthians, this is where we're told that it's while he's in Philippi that Titus meets back up with him, and he hears about the Corinthians' response to this harsh letter that he wrote. So while he's in Philippi in this, in this scene and in this time, this is when he pins 2 Corinthians to them. 
So as he's, he's the relationship has been restored. Um, Paul has been affirmed by Paul uh, by Titus's testimony in regards to that relationship. And before he shows back up in Corinth, he writes them a letter to prepare them for his upcoming visit. And we've already studied 2 Corinthians. So now, again, this is all this information that he departs and goes to Macedonia. And then he's going, as he's going over this region, as he's in Philippi, he writes this letter down to the Corinthians. He goes to Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes to Athens. And as he's traveling this road, he is doing what for the church? He's strengthening them. He's reminding them about who Jesus Christ is. He's reminding them about who they are in Jesus Christ. He's reminding them about their relationships as brothers and sisters in a congregation. He's reminding them about what it means to live for Jesus in the midst of each one of these cultures. And this is why we've paused to study um, the different communities is because every single congregation is different. You sit in Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation, every single one of them has their specific nuances. We have our nuances here to, as a congregation. You go down the road a mile in any direction, and you could, ha you could have a church that is just absolutely exploding in tribulation right now a mile away while we sit in peace. So every single one of these congregations, Paul is pursuing a relationship with them. He's pursuing a relationship with Jesus, and he's asking the Holy Spirit to direct them, direct him as he ministers to them, encouraging words, strengthening words in regards to their faith. And then we're told that Paul stays for three months in Greece. This, he stays for three months in Corinth. So our understanding that this is wintertime, this is not a time to travel in this area of the world during the winter, not a time to sail or travel. So, but when it says that he stayed there three months, this is our word for poema that we hit, I don't know how many times in Acts. When we talk about this word poema, it's about what we do, what is made. You talk about what God, his work in us is what he is doing, what he is making. So this idea of Paul staying there, it's not that he's just sitting there like a bump on a log doing a bunch of nothing. Guess what he's doing as he's in Corinth? He writes the letter to Rome. And you sit in the weight of the, the doctrinal theological argument of what the gospel is that the, this letter to the Romans represents. These are the three months that Paul is taking, pinning this out, spending time with the Lord, you know, reasoning through the doctrine and reasoning through the argument that he's sending. I mean, how many drafts did he go through the letter? I don't know. Did he get it right on the first draft? Did he, do, did he have multiple drafts and multiple sections and then bring it all together and send this letter to Rome? Because what's in Paul's heart? Rome. The Corinthian church was in his heart. He was worried about them. He sent multiple letters to them. Now that he's in their presence, he's interacting with them and strengthening that reconciled and restored relationship. But as he goes home every single night and he sits down with the candlelight, he's studying, he's praying, and he's writing this letter to believers in Rome, preparing them for his hope and his visit that he is coming there one day. So again, there's a lot more information than Luke is giving us in this brief section and just giving us kind of little points. So he stays for three months there in Corinth. 
And then as he is making travel preparations to go to Jerusalem, which is to sail to Syria and then go down to Jerusalem, it comes to his attention that the Jews are plotting to kill him. So are they plotting to kill him before he gets on the boat? Or are they waiting for him to get on the boat? Because there ought to be a bunch of Jews on the boat going to Jerusalem, going to Syria, going to this area. Are they going to have a, a little aquatic accident as they push Paul over the rail on the boat? We don't know what those details of that plot is, but Paul determines in his mind, you know what? Let's go back over land. So he changes his mind, and now he goes back through Athens to Berea to Thessalonica to Philippi. And as he's in Philippi, hold on to that. We're going to come back to the Passover and what that means at the end of the message. But as he's in Philippi, we get this we statement again. So there's this list of names. Uh, but in verse 5, it says, These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So the we, again, is Luke. We don't know what happened. We don't know when and exactly where uh, Luke was sailing with Paul earlier on, we have these we statements. It's as Paul leaves Philippi for that first time that the we narrative drops off. So we don't know if Luke stayed in Philippi this entire time or if he's traveled elsewhere. But as Paul comes back to Philippi, the we statement is picked up again, and Luke now begins to travel with Paul through the rest of the book of Acts. So this we statement, you, and again, this is what we want to sit in in relationships. As Paul is traveling through this area, and 2 Corinthians really gives us the details of this, the end of Romans does also, as he's writing from Corinth, that Paul is collecting funds and offering from the different churches in Asia and in Macedonia and in Greece to send to the poor church that's in Jerusalem. Again, now remember, all of these congregations are sitting in their different nuances. The idea um, that we have from the book of Acts is that the church that is in Jerusalem is impoverished. There's been a famine because it's the Jewish culture. They're responding to Jesus as the Messiah. Many have probably lost relationships and families and jobs. The church in Jerusalem is finding itself in extreme poverty. And as Paul is sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and the Gentiles are responding, he's taking up a collection from those Gentile churches to take to Jerusalem. And that's what these, this list of names are, these other men from these different communities. Not only are they fellow workers with Paul in the gospel, but Sopater, Aristarchus, who finds himself as a prisoner later on with Paul, Segundus, those two guys are from Thessalonica, Gaius and Timothy are from the middle of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, probably from more of the coastal cities of Asia. These are all church representatives from the different congregations going as a delegation ultimately to the church in Jerusalem, sending their love being united in, in the body of Christ, making sure that the gifts that are being given by the congregations that they're going to be used for what they've been solicited for, that that's where they're going and what they're going to be spent on. But here, again, verse 5, Luke is on the road again with Paul. Stays in Philippi, just the two of them, as everybody goes back to Troas, takes them, uh, they stay an extra week, and then verse 7, on the first day of the week, actually, so, took them five days to sail, uh, Paul and um, 
Luke took them five days to sail to Troas, and then they stay a full seven days there. Now, this narrative of their final day in Troas. Verse 7, Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. You think I'm long-winded. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. As I like to say, he was dead dead. Not just pretend dead, but dead dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, do not, be, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken and eaten and talked for uh, talked a long while, even until daybreak. He departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So here's, there's, there's a lot of details on this. So in, there in verse 7, it's the first day of the week. This is Sunday. So again, this, this transition from, we see a couple of spots, and here's the first direct reference in the book of Acts that the church is gathering together on Sundays and not the Jewish Sabbath. And again, there's, there's going to be a lot of reasons for this culturally. So Paul, as he goes from community to community sharing the gospel, where does he go? He goes to the, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he's there engaging with the Jewish culture and Jewish believers in God, and he's looking for the opportunity to share Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews. And we see this narrative often. So, in, so that there's not a competition between Jews and Christians, and as Jews are many ways are going to continue their cultural traditions, even Jewish believers, they're going to go to a Jewish synagogue on Saturdays in their communities, and then they're going to meet with believers in Jesus Christ on Sundays. So there you can see that there's, you know, there's a lot of practical reasons why it shifts, but ultimately we believe why the reason shifted to celebrating the church gathering together on Sunday is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which happened on a Sunday morning. So again, in the culture, this is a work day. So for us, we live in a culture where Sunday is set apart from the church. It has always been set apart for believers to meet together. We've had laws in this country that businesses couldn't conduct business on Sundays. Everything was closed down because you need to go to church, right? Sundays is part of our culture. But if we shift everything forward and let's say that we're meeting on, on a Monday, do you all work? You got a job to go to on a Monday morning, right? So for this culture, Sunday, it's a work day. So often in church history, you find that the believers gathered together before sunrise. Before the work of the day needed to be done, there was an early rising and there was a gathering together while it was still dark as the sun was coming up. The church is gathering together celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then what did people do? They gave their hugs and they gave their kisses and they went away from whatever that teaching looked like and that prayer looked like and they went about their work for the day. 
At the same time, some people are preparing now for the evening meal because as, as people are going out to work, now the church is going to gather together in the evening, and that's what's occurring here at Troas. They've probably already gathered together early Sunday morning and had that celebration. People have gone about their day and their work and their business as it needs to be done, and now they're gathering together at, in the evening for their meal. So as the church is gathering together in this upper room, Paul knows that he's leaving. This is his last evening with these believers. He has what's in his heart and his mind. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to Rome. Paul knows that this is his last interaction with these human beings. What would you communicate to him? And if you knew that this was your last interaction with the Apostle Paul, are you going to let him be long-winded? Now, what's, what's interesting here is you sit in the words for Paul is speaking and he's going on and on. Paul is not sitting there uh, in a monologue and just speaking a long-winded sermon. He didn't sit down for the week before and draft an encyclopedia that he's now reading through. This is conversation with the church. I guarantee he had a very specific message things that he wanted to communicate. But now as the church is gathering together in a meal and they've gone through whatever their structure looks like in prayers and in the teaching of the words and other people speaking and teaching, now there's this ongoing question and answer. What questions do these men and women have for Paul? And you can see that this is an extended conversation that keeps going on and on and on. They don't want the evening to end. Many people are going to be bright-eyed and totally engaged, and guess what? You don't see your faces every Sunday, but I see your faces. Some, and again, th this has nothing to do with the content of the message. I have fallen asleep on great speakers before. Why? Because I'm stinking tired. And I haven't had enough caffeine yet. And, and again, it has nothing to do with the communicator. It has to do with what's going on in your body. How much rest you've had. What time of day it is and those kinds of stuff. I guarantee that there's kids laying on parents' laps in this room. I guarantee that there's some adults that are nodding off. I guarantee that there's many that are fully engaged as they're in this upper room. It's going to be packed. All the believers in this community are going to want to be there. Some people have gone home. Others are stacked in there, packed and tight. And what happens when it gets warm in the room? I mean, again, they say that there's, there's many lamps in this room. So a fire takes oxygen. Some of the oxygen's getting sucked out of this room. These, hands are, uh, these lamps are producing heat. The bodies are producing heat. And a wise young boy does what? He goes up and sits in the open window. And this is going to be in early April because Passover has just happened. He's sitting on a window where there's some fresh air coming in. And then what does it say happens to Eutychus? It's tired. It's midnight, and Paul's been going on and on. And this kind of sleep, this is, this is when you fall asleep sitting up, and all the facial muscles relax, and the jaw begins to hang open. And what happens to you usually? You have a couple twitches, right? When you find yourself starting to doze off and you twitch back awake, I guarantee that this happened to him a couple times. He's wedged himself in a way where he, you know, he's not putting forth too much energy to be... Uh, you know, to remain stable, but he finds himself falling into a deep sleep. And at a twitch, his body is relaxed, he falls out of the window. Dead, dead. And again, this, this is something that we can kind of giggle and smirk at because we know the end, but put yourself 
in that environment. Here the church is gathered together. We're worshiping together. We're praying together. We're eating together. We're interacting with one another according to the truth of the word. And then you got Gabe and Jaden sitting up there in the crow's nest. And one of them's sitting on the little windowsill. And he's falling asleep on me again. And he falls out of there right now and he drops down dead. What kind of turmoil and commotion is going to happen in this place? We're going to freak out. There's going to be those helpers that are going to go take control and go try and figure out what's going on in his body. There's going to be people screaming. I mean, it's going to be chaos and turmoil, right? He falls out the window. We're told that Paul goes down the, and, and that Eutychus is taken up dead. There's no life in his body. And Paul comes running down those stairs. Love, concern, tragedy just happened. God, help. You see this example in the Old Testament of both Elijah and Elisha as young boys die. You see these men embrace these children and life comes back into them. We can sit in those Old Testament stories. And here Paul is shoving everybody out of the way and he embraces this child. And what happens? His life comes back. And he tells him to what? Stop making so much noise. His life is in him. Can you imagine? The gasps, the what just happened, the quote, well, maybe he wasn't dead. No, he was dead, dead. Mom and dad are there. We're told that, you know, that they were, they were not a little comforted. You sit, in the, you sit in the testimony as the gospel of Jesus goes into community to community in these areas. And even in, even in modern times, and you guys, many of you have experienced this to different degrees where God does something supernatural. And what's the purpose? God loves us. God cares about us. Sometimes he places us in circumstances that he doesn't free us from. He doesn't bring that life back. And we trust him and we walk through with him in those processes. But here, Paul's been communicating the gospel for hours to this community in relationship over this last week. And now they have the very real, undeniable testimony that the God that Paul is preaching is the true and living God and he has power over life and death because that young boy was dead and he just resurrected from the dead. And again, this is why that this story is here. Luke's just going from point to point, right? He's getting Paul from Ephesus and his travel in, in modern-day Greece, and he's getting him back to Jerusalem for, those, uh, for the events that are going to transpire there. That's all that Luke really cares about in the narrative that he's giving right now. And he pauses here for the testimony that God is life, and he has given us life. The power over death. Death has zero authority over us because of what Jesus did on the cross. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the testimony of the reality of that event. And this is where all of our hope rests. He has the power of our life. Praise God. Now in verse 13... Luke says that we went ahead to the ship and sailed to 
Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board, so when you sit in uh, a map, you can follow even the modern shipping lanes. So Troas is on the northern side of this peninsula, so they had to sail around the end of it to come to Asos, which is underneath. So Paul walked. So it says, for he had given orders. He made these arrangements, intending himself to go on foot. We don't know why. Were there, were there extended conversations that he needed to have with the group there in Troas, and people are walking with them? Is, is there somebody or some others, another congregation that he wants to meet with as he's traveling down. Uh, Paul determines to go by foot, and then they pick him up there in Asos. So when he met us in Asos, we took him on board, and then they're traveling south. They come to Midelaine, Midelena, whatever. We sailed from there the next day and came opposite Chios, which is the hometown, home community of Homer. The following day, we arrived at Sam Samos, which the dude, Pythagorean, the Pythagorean theory, that's where he's from, and stayed at Trogilium. So these are all, if you're from this area of the world, these are all known places. And again, this is a known shipping channels and travel stops that are about a day apart. The next day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And here's the, the, here's the full circle of, of the travel on, as Paul is on the road again. He started in Ephesus as we began this, travels into Greece, and now he's come back, and this is about a year period of time. But the boat, rather than stopping in Ephesus, he's gone to the next community down, which is Miletus, and we're told that Paul doesn't want to get stuck in Ephesus. So there's multiple issues here. Paul lived in Ephesus for over two years, so there's lots of relationships there. He feels that if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to get delayed by those relationships. There could also be the reality that uh, the last time Paul was in Ephesus, there was a huge uproar in regards to his presence and the preaching of the gospel. So there could be the potential danger that if he went back to Ephesus, that he wouldn't be able to fulfill his travel plans to Jerusalem and Rome. So that's part of the idea. So when they land in Miletus, this is 30 miles to the south. So this is still going to take Paul five days because as we continue on next week, he sends people to Ephesus to get the elders of the church in Ephesus. So we send somebody there, and now they have to travel all the way back, and then they have time in that communication. That's going to take time, but for Paul, that's less time than if he actually landed in Ephesus. And this is where we want to end today, because even as we sit in culturally, we just sat in Thanksgiving as a cultural holiday. We're going to enter into Christmas, which is both a cultural and a religious holiday, depending on your backgrounds and your perspectives. But as Paul is a good Jewish boy, right? And Paul is a good Jewish boy that has been radically transformed by Jesus, by the Messiah. And we have that testimony on that Damascus road in his life subsequent to that event. We have Paul's writings where he tells us that in Jesus Christ, there's no longer a Jew or Gentile, right? We have Paul writing to the Gentile church that the Gentile church, that you don't need to practice Jewish religious traditions and festivals. And, you know, you, don't, you do not have a relationship with the God who created you through the Jewish law. You have a relationship with the God who created you through a son who he sent to die for your sins, who is alive forevermore. Amen. But what's Paul doing? In Philippi, it's Passover. 
And Luke is a Gentile believer, but for whatever reason, Paul, there's a, there's a specific note there that Luke puts into his narrative is that Paul chose to remain behind to celebrate Passover. And that transition for Paul from a, uh, from a Juju, a good Jewish boy, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and the transition in his life um, to, again, this is 20 years down the road that he's been following Jesus. How has that cultural holiday and religious holiday morphed for Paul? I don't know how many of you who have ever sat in a, in a Jewish Seder from a Christian perspective, looking at all of the imagery that, we, that exposes Jesus as the Messiah to us. It's, it's fabulous. But you sit with Paul. Paul is, you know, the, the Passover, the major emphasis of the Passover outside of the, you know, the Egypt implications is here is Jesus as our lamb without blemish, who has been sacrificed for us. And as the blood of the lamb is applied to our household, what happens? Judgment passes over. We have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. There's all this incredible imagery. And again, this is, there's always a lot more information, even in what's going on in your lives. When we ask how, each, how you're doing, you know, it's good, and we may pull out a little bit, but there's always a lot more going on behind the scenes. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes, just in Paul's personal relationship with the Savior. That even here's all these years down the road, as he has a specific goal to go to Jerusalem, he has a specific goal to go to Rome, he has a specific goal of strengthening the churches that he's ministering to, he has all of these responsibilities that are upon him every single day in those goals, he has all of these relationships of men that he's traveling with together and all the, all the issues that have to go on in keeping these diverse personalities and diverse cultures unified in Christ. There's a lot going on in Paul's life. And here he, on purpose, presses pause. And for eight days, he's just, he's just engaged in the Lord. And who knows what's going on in those specific days. But he hits pause on the journey of life and spends time intentionally remembering Jesus' sacrifice for him. Jesus' sacrifice for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Jesus' sacrifice for his Gentile brothers and sisters. The Passover, as we remember through uh, communion, Jesus' body and his blood, it's a weekly reminder that as we gather together, we are remembering who our God is as our creator. We are remembering that he became like us. We are remembering his death and everything that that means. Can you imagine being responsible for all of your sins to your creator? Talking about a horrific scenario. And then I remember it's through his body and his blood on the cross that that is what I am freed from. Oh, my. I think a lot of this in, in Paul's mind and in his relationship with the Lord, God is preparing him for what's coming ahead. And Paul's had a lot of hardships in his life. He's had a lot of tribulation. He's had a lot of difficult relationships. 
And there's going to be a lot more hardship coming up. And I really think that he is just grounding himself once again in a fresh way in who Jesus Christ is as his Savior, as the one that died for me, as the Passover lamb. And then not only that, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is just day one. The next seven days after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the major emphasis that we have in the Old Testament, it's just the house has been cleansed from all leaven. It's been cleansed from all sin. And it's seven days of celebrating what it is that Jesus has done in cleaning your house. And I think that that's awesome. And then as we travel through this, you know, down the road with Paul, here at the very end, Paul's got in his mind that in Philippi, it was this, this feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread that are, that are tied together. And now here at the end of our narrative this morning, he's got a goal to be in Jerusalem on what day? On Pentecost. It's the feast of weeks. It's, it's seven weeks after Passover. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? The church was born. Again, you can, you can sit in the Jewish tradition, and it's the feast of first fruits and, and the imagery that we have from that, but the testimony that we have in the book of Acts is on the day of Pentecost, as the church was gathered together, that God gave his Holy Spirit to dwell in believers in Jesus Christ. Do you want the Holy Spirit in you? Do you want the Almighty God to take up residence in you? And this is, this, is some, this, is a, this is a truth. This is a reality that through faith in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit have taken up home here. That is something to be celebrated. And again, we remember Jesus' resurrection, his sacrifice, his resurrection every single Sunday. We also remember the Holy Spirit every single Sunday. We are filled with the Almighty God. He is here and he is present. And Paul has a very specific goal to be in that place where the Holy Spirit was first given to human beings to dwell in, where the church was born in Jerusalem. I want to be there on that day. Again, this is all in his personal relationship with the Lord. Luke's just throwing out these dates for us. We, we set our calendars by birthdays and by major cultural holidays and that kind of stuff. Paul's calendar is set from when he was a kid, right? That Jewish calendar that he learned growing up. Growing up. But the calendar has taken on totally different meaning as he has found life. And not just 20 years ago, but he has life today in Jesus. He's making very specific goals, very specific pauses in his life, in his ministry, in his work to make sure that he remains connected and in relationship and in wonder in what it is that Jesus has done, but not just the work of God and not just the actions of God, but that he's connected with God who is true, who leads us in the way who is our life. Amen? This is, this is what we do as we gather together week after week. So Heavenly Father, we have come here to remember you. We have come here to remember that you're our God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We've come here to remember that we get to call you Dad, Abba, Father, Papa. We get to remember that out of the sea of humanity, that you have pursued each and every one of us. You have drawn us to yourself. 
You have chased us, Lord. You have freed us from our sins through the work of your son on the cross, through the proclamation of the gospel of our, in our lives, Lord. You're the one that's broken down our minds and our hearts and all those barriers, all those excuses that we threw at you for why we don't believe in you, why we don't trust you, why religion bugs us. Lord, you, you have stripped all of that away from us. And you have given us freedom in you, liberty. I'm on vacation right now, Lord, and this is where I choose to be. When I'm not uh, in this place gathering with my brothers and sisters, Lord, it feels strange. Even this week, Lord, not having a midweek study with my brothers, it felt strange. Out of my rut, my good rut. Give you thanks just for the simple sentences that we read through today about Paul's travel itinerary. How much we, we learn about you, how much we see you, how much we see the relationships that we have with other brothers and sisters, Lord, the strength and encouragement and the hope that we see. That even in the moment of tragedy, Lord, you bring forth your life and your celebration. Thank you for that testimony. Eutychus falling out of a window, breaking his neck, dead. That doesn't stop you. That doesn't stop your life. That doesn't stop your power. I trust you with my life, Lord, that you've given to me. We trust you with one another's lives. We are here to remember your sacrifice, your blood, the new hearts, the new covenants. We are here to remember your life, your glory, your majesty. We're here to be one with you, to love you, Lord. We're here not to play games, but to be stripped away of all of our flesh, Lord. We're here for the devil to be silenced. We're here to be freed from the wicked culture in which we dwell. We're here to ask you, Lord, to keep us from being spotted by the things of this world, Lord, that you would keep us clean. Lord, we're asking that you'd help us to know what is true. Well, Lord, we're asking for you to give us the wisdom that we need in all of our relationships with our spouses and our children, with one another here. Lord, we're asking for that open door of opportunity that you gave for Paul to share the gospel. Give it to us, Lord, here in our community, in our places of work, in our families, with our friends, Lord. Do it again. Keep saving us, Lord. Keep building your church. Transform us. Just be like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.